Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of the Bob Lefsetz Podcast. My guest this week is my friend and CEO extraordinaire of Gold Star Events, Jim McCarthy. Hi, Bob. How's it going? Good. We're here in the middle of the summer. I'm sure it's your busy season. For those people, how many cities is Gold Star in now? 70 or 80 in the United States. Really? It's all over the place, yeah. But for those people unaware of what Gold Star is, why don't you explain? Gold Star is designed to help you answer the question, what are you going to do this weekend, tonight, in a couple of weeks when your sister comes into town, whatever it is. And the way we do that is by bringing together literally thousands of organizers, promoters, venues who have events to sell with people who want to buy them. The, The biggest problem that people have when it comes to live entertainment is just knowing what's going on. One thing that I do, it almost never fails, is I ask somebody, name three or four things that are happening in your town this weekend. Most people can come up with zero to one. <laughs> you know, they really, they're just unaware of the stuff that's going on. And the reality is that in every major American city, there's just great stuff going on. So Gold Star puts them all together. We work directly with those venues and promoters to make the event content for sale on Gold Star. We make the process to buy it and discover it really easy. In most cases, there's a discount, as you know. And the whole thing is that when you use Gold Star, people go out twice as often as when they're not using Gold Star as a member. So that's our goal. Let's look at it from the consumer end. Uh, And correct me if I'm wrong. To the consumer end, it's basically a site that you can go to where you can find events in your area that, generally speaking, are sold at a discount. It's it. That's not a bad general statement about it. it it's an app and a site also, of course, an email. Right. Um, but it's, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, you know, about 10% of our business is actually full-price sales. So these are the, there are events that aren't discounted, but they are available on Gold Star because, again, we have 9 million people who come to us for one reason and one reason only, and that's to figure out what they're going to go do. So as a platform simply to reach people who are looking for something to do, Gold Star's pretty much number one. Okay, at this point in time, it's hard to know what's going on. Assuming you even get the newspaper, you read the newspaper right. about an event the what? that happened <laughs> that you were unaware of. Right, right. No one has been able to create one site that's a go-to place for all events. Generally speaking, we're in Los Angeles now, you only list events that you have tickets for, correct? That's true. That's true. And of events, I don't know how we can quantify this, but of events, let's say in an average city like Los Angeles, how many of those events do you think you have tickets for? I think we're in Los Angeles right now, we're selling about 600 events. So it's certainly not exhaustive. There are events that we don't have, but we have a lot. And I think the question is less, do we have every single thing? And more, can we find you something big or small, well-known or, or not so well-known, that's going to enable you to go have a great time. So that's so, how we look at it. But it's a lot of events. Okay, because I know people who use the site and they'll say, well, it's Saturday night, I have no plans. Sure. Let me see what's on Gold Star. Yeah. Would you think that's your average customer? It's a combination of that sort of use case where it's like, hey, what can I do? You know, give me, give me something to do. And another one where we do promote events and email is a big tool for us. You sign up, you get emails that are automatically tailored for for what you like. A little bit slower. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Assuming I have to have it, can I see the events if I don't have an account? Uh, Yes, you can. You can see the events. But to purchase anything, you need an account. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing to having an account. It's free. Right, right. But my next question is, Mm -hmm. if I have an account, do I have to receive the email? Not at all. You can unsubscribe from any and all emails. And a lot of people do, you know. Okay. So assuming I 
am signed up to the service and I'm getting email, am I getting the email that the person who lives down the street from me is? Well, every email is actually individual. How do you do that? It's a technology we call Matchmaker, which is a combination of all the data from everything that everybody does. You know, if you click on something, I click on something, I buy something, I forward an email, all of that creates a complex set of mathematics that I don't even begin to understand, but it, it implies what your tastes are as opposed to mine. And it looks for things that are more likely to match yours than mine. And actually, you know, we've been doing this for, we've been doing this for almost 14 years now, the, the filtering that sort of automated. Um, but in the last year, we've actually really taken it forward with the next gen version of this technology, which is really making a difference in terms of finding things that really suit people uh, and by the way, the thing I like best about it, it's not just that people are, you know, clicking on it more and buying more. We're actually showing them a wider range of things. Why would it be wider? Because we're actually able to figure out a little bit more what's special about your tastes than somebody else's. So that means we, because we have this big pool of events to draw from, we're actually finding, uh, you know, events and putting them in front of people in a, in a more diverse, you know, way because the, the technology has just evolved to be smarter. Okay, so... If I am signed up and I'm getting email, how often will I get an email? It 100% depends. Many people will get an email about once a day. Some people get it more often because they like to open them. And other people, of course, get maybe one or two a week. And then, of course, you can opt for none whatsoever. Let's Assuming I'm opting in, yeah. how do you decide how many emails I get? It depends a lot on how much you like the email. So the more you open and read them, the more likely you are to get a, a second one in a day, let's say, or two days in a row. If you don't open them, don't look at them as often, the amount sort of tapers off. So it's all within the – it's the ghost in the machine that's figuring this out. There's no human thing. There's program that's written, and you have all that feedback, whether it's opened or not. Does it also uh, – does frequency depend on whether I buy or not? Actually, no. It, it really doesn't. When it comes to email, right. which is just one part of the business, right. it really isn't about purchases as much as it is your, your email behavior. So if I get an email, how many events will it tell me about? Some emails are focused on a single event with maybe a dozen or so secondary events that are pulled out of this matchmaker technology. And some, one of the most popular ones comes out on Tuesday. It's a great big compendium of the stuff that's in your in your city, let's say. And so that could be 50 or 100. Okay. How do you get, at Goldstar, how do you get the tickets? We work, and this is something that whenever I tell this story, it seems incredibly painful and, and arduous because it really was painful and arduous. But we have thousands of relationships with promoters and venues, and we work directly with them to actually take this inventory on consignment. So it's not— So you don't buy any of the inventory? No. No. So let's assume, to reuse raw numbers, you have 100 tickets and you sell 50 of them. You will give the other 50 back to the promoter. Yeah. Like I said, it's like think of it as consignment. You know, we right. – we, uh, and, and then what's interesting is it used to be, as you're saying, kind of a process of like, hey, give us – I'm doing air quotes – give us 100 tickets. We sell as many as we can and then sort of return the other 50 if it's 50. But – you know, because we're actually digitally connected with the key ticketing systems now, it almost doesn't even – it's almost just a maximum. You know, they put 100, we sell whatever. They never really left 
the pool of I tickets under, available, right? So it's, uh, that's evolved a Let's little bit, Let's just too. say, hypothetically, you sell 100 and the event's still a couple of days away. Yeah. And let's assume the event is not instantly sold out. Right. Do you tend to be able to get more tickets? Yeah. That, that's one of the things that we've really keyed on over the years is when something is moving, we want to encourage the promoter to put more tickets to, to, to be available where people are buying. Uh, in fact, they can do it for themselves now. So if you're, if you're a Gold Star organizer in our system, you can go in and actually add inventory directly with no human intervention in the system. Okay, let's say it's January 1st. You need, yep. and let's focus on one city, you need X amount of inventory to run your business. At this point, to what degree is that automated or are there people at your company who literally have relationships with event producers and deciding how many tickets and what events, et cetera? Those two things aren't necessarily in conflict with each other. The relationships and the automation, they work hand in hand. Because what we don't want people at Gold Star doing is pushing paper around. We want them giving good marketing input to our partners in the venues. So although now we're about 90-plus percent automated in terms of the process, by fall it's going to be 100 percent automated in terms of the process. The process process of of, of inventory. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. even though our goal is to make the manual – the way I put it is if, if it's something a computer could do just as well as a human, then a computer should do it. Um, but there are a lot of things that a human and only a human can really do, which is to help people understand how to take best advantage of the Gold Star audience. And so the, the automation and the human touch don't conflict, but they change, right? They're, no longer do we have people doing as much sort of manual information manipulation as, as in – say, 10 years ago. Let's focus on the consumer side first. So you have X X number of events. What do you do do as a company to encourage me to buy a ticket other than send me an email? Is there marketing in the email? Is there any science in that? They'll say, oh, this makes it more attractive. Well, every email is, like I said, is individual. So the email part of it is... um, is designed to respond to what you do. But in the same way, the app and the website do this do the exact same thing. So your experience of, of both the website and the app are also individualized based on the same matchmaker technology. That's one thing. I think the other thing is that, you know, one of the things that I'm happiest about is that we are able to bring to people's attention awesome events that they just wouldn't know about. I mean, Give the, us a couple of examples. Yeah, um, I think of a couple of, of recent ones. The, you know, there, um, there actually there was a whole series. You may have seen this at some point. Do you see any of the for the record shows at the Rockwell stages in in uh, in LA? No, I did not. It was a really great series of shows, and there's still some shows that are going on there. And uh, Shane Shield is the producer, really creative, sort of young, you know, producer. Uh, these were shows that happened in a, a, a kind of a bar restaurant environment. They were these immersive shows where the performers were singing and performing all around you, and they would take something like the movies of John Hughes, and they would do a little scene and a and a song from one of the John Hughes movies. And these are shows that, again, you, you never heard of them, but they brought in really, really high-caliber performers and just did an amazing, fun show. Um, wasn't I – mean, I mean, they were full, right? I mean, we, we helped really okay, okay, so drive say, a lot of people in So there. how big were the venues? How many tickets were available in- – at large, I, I think probably there were two or three hundred. I'm just thinking back right. to the venue. There were right. two or three hundred people who could be seated there. Okay, and how many tickets of the two or three hundred did Gold Star sell? Do you think? Um, 
I'm sure it varied, but I know there were nights when we sold 50 or 75 of those. Okay. So in this particular case, this producer did not have a previous history with Gold Star, correct? At some point, yeah. I mean, at some, at some So point. how would they hook up with Gold Star? We're pretty well known just out there in the industry, I would say, as a place where you're going to find a live entertainment audience. And so that's one thing. You know, we're, we put out every possible, you know, feeler that we can to, to make it easy for people to come in. But of course, what we do have people doing, we, our venue team, is looking around and saying, okay, what's going on? You know, so we try to have people who have a real interest or curiosity about just what's happening in, in the places where they're serving. Um, and they go, ooh, look at that. That sounds good. I mean, that, that's, I think, often where it starts is someone goes, ooh, I want to go to that. <laughs> you know, and as soon as you have that impulse of, well, I want to go to that, well, it's like, well, then don't you think maybe there's a, a few hundred other people who want to go to that? And so they'll, they'll reach out and to the producer, they'll do some research and find out who's behind a certain show or a certain event and say, hey, you should really, you know, put this on Gold Star and you can reach our vast, you know, live entertainment audience. How many people are on, are signed up act, and are active in Los Angeles? About a million. Okay. Yeah. So let's focus once more on the consumer side. You have this for the record event. Yeah. Can you name another event that you brought attention to? Sure. Um, there have been... Uh, let me think of a couple of – we do a lot of theater. I, I think you, you know that too. There, there have been some theater events that um, for some reason are eluding me at the moment. But th there's a there's a, uh, a theater event in Burbank right now at the Gary Marshall Theater. Really interesting and I would just editorialize This is say, part of the TV Academy? That's the theater? It's actually just Gary Marshall's uh, project that he – started some years ago before he died. Really? How, yeah. What's the capacity? I think it's 110, 120. Okay. So it's a really small theater. Uh, beautifully done, as you'd imagine. And um, so he passed away a few years ago. Right. Um, but, but this is one of his projects. He wanted to create a, a really attractive, you know, small theater space and has done great work, just great work there over the years in a really small setting that's just, you know, nicely done, great environment, et cetera. And there's a show there right now, or may have just recently closed, called uh, Wood Boy Dogfish. And it is a really odd, very, very well-staged puppetry and immersive experience with a lot of technology. And we send a lot of people to it. I mean, it's, a, it's certainly an event that you probably have to be a theater person right. to really. But, but you could also easily miss it, even, even as a big theater fan. You could easily miss it. But we send a lot of people to it. And I'm just telling you, it's done at an extremely high level of quality. Uh, and it's and it's done well. It's just that you know our audience is you know coal for the fire of of their success. Let's go to the other extreme. Yep. these are events the average person would miss. That's right. How about a major event that I want a ticket to? Give me an example. Let's just use an example. Something at the Forum, the Greek Hollywood Bowl. For us, we have a lot of that content, but where we don't see our role as being, and and maybe the, over time this could change, but we don't see our role as being. Um, a major player in where you go to for sure find that, right? So if you if you want to be able to buy anything that's at the Hollywood Bowl, we we think you're probably going to be able to find that, right? I mean, Google is, if you know exactly what you want at a major, major venue, your your best tool is Google in most cases. So we don't, we don't, we're happy to provide that. And one of the reasons that we have inventory at full price in many cases is because we know that we're the place where a lot of people do their ticket buying. So we want it to be available for them. But we don't see it as um, 
we don't see it as sort of our mission to make sure we have every single thing in those in those big venues. So, but let's say you know yeah. the Hollywood Bowl, which plays over the summer. There are two different promoters there: one Live Nation, mm-hmm. one the Philharmonic. Yeah. Of the let's call it a hundred shows over the summer, how many do you think would be on Gold Star? Probably fifty would be my guess. Fifty, you said. Yeah, I think. 50. And would those fifty tend to be full price? In those cases, with a really big venue, it would tend to be a combination of price points. So even with the, within the same, you know, as you know, the, right. there's never any trouble selling right up front. front right, it's so way far back at the it's Hollywood way far Bowl, back, or oftentimes it's in the middle where it gets a little mushy, and it's right. not just a bowl issue. It's everywhere, right? The 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 low price is attractive to people. Right. The best seats are attractive to people, and where it gets a little mushy in general in the industry is that sort of middle point where it's not always easy to find the exact match of price and seat. Um, and so the bigger the venue, the higher that's – the more likely that is to be true, right? The more complex the pricing becomes. Okay. Let's switch completely to the producer side. So when Gold Star started, which was what, 2002? That's right. The image – and you can tell me whether it's reality – was this is a place to sell discount tickets. And let's use concert promoters as a classic example. They did not not want their tickets discounted. They didn't want yeah. the image and the value of the product to be de- devalued. That's, is that an accurate description? I think it is, yes. I think, I think that's an accurate description of the thought process in general about pricing in 2002. Okay. So how did you deal with that, change that, you know, interact with that? Well, I think the, we were on to something in the – in the meta sense when we started the company in 2002, which is that pricing would become more complex and more important in the live entertainment business than it was in the pre, really the pre-web era. Go back to 95, 90, 85, whenever, prices were very simple, price structures, you know, were very simple relative to today, obviously, and, and pretty damn hard to change, right? I mean, it was... You know, whether it was because of the hard tickets or you printed posters that had prices or whatever it was, changing price was difficult. Well, now, of course, it's easier all the time. You know, it's just progressively easier. And what I think you see if you just look at the history of what uh, computer technology has done with different industries is it says, well, listen, price is a lever. Price is a lever that can change demand, can, cre- can change perception, can, can change your business results in a way that's profound. It's one of the biggest levers in business. And so you can't really afford as an industry or an individual you know, player within the industry to ignore price. You have to take full advantage of it. Um, and so I think we knew that was one of the intuitions that we had about where – live entertainment was as an industry when we started the business, which is just like there's so little ability to change and move price that it's needed. <laughs> you know, and, and the, the, the first one that was kind of obvious was, hey, sometimes shows don't sell out. So maybe if we made more people aware of them and used price as a motivator to really get them off the, you know, out of that little rut and, and into actual ticket buying action, it'll work. And so that's how it started. So walk me through how long it took you to invade all these traditional players and how you ultimately convinced them to act differently and use your service? Uh, I mean, it was a gradual process. I mean, we, we were a bootstrapped organization, so we really operated lean for, for many years. I mean, in some ways, I feel like our heritage as a bootstrapped organization is still part of how we behave today. Um, but I, we were strictly in L.A. for a couple of years. 
and then added West Coast cities and then went back east in 2006 and seven. So it really took us a while to sort of move out from, from the base. Um, our, our initial success or our initial audience was in theater and performing arts because there are so many of those events, you know, and, and they really perceived a need to build audience, which is correct. Um, for anybody, it's correct. But so it probably – when we started talking about more complex pricing and started to crack into um, music in particular, it probably took six or seven years to really start to say, listen, this is an audience of some scale. You know, it's not the biggest audience in the world, but it's millions of people focused on one thing, which is live entertainment. And we can do a lot of different things with price and promotion, by the way. I mean, I don't know that anybody promotes live entertainment sort of as as fervently as we do, right? Like we're we're constantly, you know, promoting in a whole bunch of different ways, um, and so you want to be part of that, right? Like our, our argument was, this is the kind of media that you would spend real money for. You don't have to because it's performance based, and we're here to help you find what part of our audience can will benefit your business. We'll take a quick break and come back with more of my conversation with Gold Star CEO and founder Jim McCarthy, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. Most of the time I talk to musicians like Moby or managers like Shep Gordon, but I also really love getting the stories of the executives in and around the music industry, like Jim. Whether you come for the music, the tech business, or otherwise, be the first to hear next week's episode by subscribing to the podcast on TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, or your podcast player of choice. While you're there, please rate and review the podcast. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with Jim McCarthy. Okay, well, we know each other, but for the sake of the audience, you're originally from? I grew up in South Carolina. South Carolina. Yes, sir. You know, you, how come you don't have an accent? <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I was, it's funny. I, I was a, a DJ at a radio station in, in, at home when I was in high school. That was my, my high school job. And I was listening to... This is a professional station. Yeah, well, you know, yes, it was. Yeah, it was a... Well, let you know, you're a guy I can ask this. Yeah. How old are you today? I'm 48. Okay, so we're talking, you're a DJ in the in, 80s? In, in, yeah, like 80s, 85, 86, okay. 87, yeah. And we had, there was a little AM station that had a, you know, probably a nice... 40-mile sort of radius, and then we also did a satellite FM station that all we had to do was monitor it. But on the AM station, I literally was spinning the records, literally getting to, to the office an hour before my shift and pulling records down from the, uh, the collection and, you know, planning out my, my shift and everything. But uh, – and then, you know, potting up the commercials and, you know, the, the station identification, the ABC News at the top of the hour and all the rest of that stuff. Well, how did you get that gig? Uh, because I was the uh, in the super nerdy broadcast club in my high school, and we made a radio show every week for our high school, which was fun. It was just the most fun thing in my week, of course. And uh, and so we were, we actually made it at this radio station. They very kindly allowed us to uh, to use their studio to make the record uh, to make the radio show once a week. And so somebody said, "Hey, you know, there's there's this uh, weekend." Um, 
DJ who's leaving, you know, we, we, you sound pretty good. Why don't you, uh, would you be interested in this? I was like, hell yeah, I'm interested in this. You know, in high school, your job options are few, but, you know, I didn't, didn't get paid at, at diddly squat. But, I mean, come on, you know, of all the things you could be doing as a high school job, that's pretty good. Well, how much were you on the radio in a week? I was on usually for one or two shifts. So I would be on either a Saturday morning from sort of 8 to 12. When no one else wanted to work. No one else wanted to work. Or even worse, from 8 to 12 p.m. on Saturday evening. Right. When nobody really When I went to college, I remember I was on the college radio station. I had, you know, the morning on Saturday. No one else wanted that right. gig. Right. And the irony was people listened because they wake up yeah. and they listen to the station. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that was a lot of fun. I mean, you know, that's just um, – I didn't care when it was, right? Like I was, I was so happy to be there, and it was a what do they call it? Not adult alternative. I, it was it was sort of a slightly unhip pop station. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, but I, of course, had strong enough taste in music to be able to carve out a pretty cool set, you know, right, over within, the four hours within that range. Within the range, yeah. Okay, you're in South Carolina. What do your parents do for a living? Uh, my father uh, was a meteorologist in the Air Force. Meteorologist? What is that? What do you actually do if you're a meteorologist in the well, Air Force? Well, I mean, the, the Air Force depends on weather, right? Of so, course. So you have to constantly make observations and forecasts so that the planes can either fly or not fly or they're aware of whatever dangers there, there might be out there. Okay. And your mother worked in the home? Yes. Yeah. Okay. But was he from South Carolina? No, no. We, we actually lived on, for m- most of the time, lived on an Air Force base in, in South Carolina, which is part of why I don't really have an accent. I was, was going to get back to that, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, it, it had this wonderful benefit of having this extremely cosmopolitan little island in the middle of South Carolina. So I had sort of both, you know, both influences. Um, but, the, you know, an Air Force base is... I mean, it's just one of the most cosmopolitan places you can imagine because people are literally from everywhere, um, both around the country and also around the world because people go overseas, they, they get married, they, they bring uh, wives and, and I guess husbands back you know, to the States and cultures mix and it's really interesting. Okay, and this was a public school you were going to? Yeah, oh yeah. yeah okay, so. and did you live in government housing? There were times when we lived on base, which is base housing. I don't know if you've spent a lot of time around military people. But I have not. Yeah, so yeah, the, it, when you're in the military, which was true for part of my childhood. So, so he was he, literally in the military. Yeah, no, he was a, you know, a, a, you know wearing a uniform right. to work and all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, we lived in base housing for some of my childhood, not all. And then how long was he in the military? He retired. And um, did not work again. I mean, a long career or did he have a second career? No, he was very young when he retired. I mean, that's, you know, that's one of the perks of, exactly, of the military exactly. is you retire when you're 40 and take your pension and go do something else. So, Did he do something else? Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he continued actually with meteorology. Um, okay. There and there are how many kids in your family? I have two younger brothers. So you're the oldest. I'm the oldest. Now, you end not, up Probably going, not a surprise to you. Okay. But you end up going to Harvard. <laughs> I did. Where did your father and mother go to college? Well, neither of them went to college. Really? Yeah. So you were did did they were they pushing you were they tiger parents? Um, well, there was unfortunately a little more disorder in my family situation than if you were listening up to now than you would probably pick up on. But my mother was one of these single single ish mothers or at least part of the time. They just did heroic 
job with me and my brothers. Do you know? Wait, just to be clear, because your father was out on uh, on the road. Well, they, they got divorced, and there was just this, this chaos in in the. Well, what, just what the just family a little bit sorry. Was. They got divorced, but then they got back together. No. Okay, so how old yeah. were they when they, you got divorced? I think I was twelve. Okay, yeah. so relatively young. Yeah, yeah. And did either of them get remarried? They both did. And there are other children. Um, no, no, no other children from, from those subsequent. Marriages. Okay. So when your parents get divorced, you continue to live in South Carolina? Yeah. Cause, and funnily enough, my, my grandfather retired at the same air force base. And so a little nexus of family sort of grew up in that area around there. Okay. So your mother's a single mother. Yeah. Yes. And so you were telling a story. Well, just that her, her efforts in keeping the three of us sort of on track in life, I would put down as being heroic, you know, in the sense that she didn't really have, and she was very young. My mother's, uh, my mother's was 17 when I was born. Wow. Yeah. So she didn't really have, you know, this huge background of knowing, you know, what college to, none of that, right? She just had a very strong focus on making sure that, that we, you know, sort of stayed on the straight and narrow. And most importantly, like be a good person, go to college, and then it's up to you. Like this was really her, Mantra. For okay, us. well, Harvard is at the pinnacle of America's educational system. At what point did you realize in your career that you were on that track? Um, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure the ball could have bounced the other way and over ended up some, someplace, you know, awful like Yale. But um, it, you know, it was it was fairly early on in my school career that I just was getting good grades, and I think when you get to the point, you know, in early high school or, or junior high, where you realize, okay. My future is largely going to be – it's going to be reshaped in a few years by going somewhere for college. Right. Um, and so my logic was just the same as somebody who maybe realizes they're a really good basketball player or a really good – you know, like, okay, this is an opportunity. You know, this is an opportunity to, to level up my set of possibilities. So I'm going to take it super seriously. So I took – Getting the kind of credentials and everything, putting myself in a position to go, whether it's Harvard or even Yale, but, you know, wherever, right? <laughs> um, I'm, that's my last shot at Yale for the, okay. for the day. Um, uh, but, what, you know, whatever kind of place, right, that, that I knew that that would mean a lot for me in terms of my, my, um, my view of the field. You know what I mean? Okay. Now, you have two siblings. We've yes. discussed this before. One, one got into a boy band. Actually. That's right. But did they go to college? Uh, he did not. He did not. But he is uh, uh, super talented. And, and, you know, his college essentially was touring the world as part of a boy band. And for those listening intently, the name of that boy band no was? No Authority. Okay. Tommy, <laughs> Tommy McCarthy. And then your other sibling? Yeah, our, our brother Jason is uh, a general contractor building houses extremely successfully in, um, in Pauly's Island, South Carolina. And did he go to college? He did, yeah. In fact, he, he went to uh, the University of South Carolina, and then he got his master's degree in, I, th- I think the degree is in education, but he was for a period of time a, uh, a counselor in the high school. Okay, so you go to Harvard. Harvard is need blind, such that if you don't have the money, they give you the money. Yeah. I assume you got some kind of scholarship. Tons. No, it, you know, I think this is one of the, as, as a, you know, Harvard alum and interviewer and, and that, I just want to say... No one should not apply to Harvard or – and there's others, you know, many other schools right. because of the money side. This is one of the saddest things to me when people actually who might qualify, might end up, you know, getting access to one of these places 
and doesn't apply because they make some assumptions about, oh, it's too expensive. Well, yeah, it's super expensive, but almost nobody pays for Harvard, at least in full. And certainly, you know, Harvard and Yale and Stanford and, and several other schools of that nature have, have made very specific statements of like, hey, if your family income is below this, you're not paying a dime. Right. You know, it doesn't. Well, as they say, you know, they call it need blind such if you can get in yeah. on the criteria of academics, whatever, yeah. they will give you the money if, they, if you don't have it. That's right. And I think it's wonderful. And so when you went to Harvard, did you have to pay it all? Yeah, we had a little – they go through – they went through and make a little assessment of what you have to pay. I think if I had been there post the new policy in the mid-2000s, I wouldn't have paid anything. But at oh, that point, they were still uh, – Okay, but you go to Boston and it's yeah. well established that a great percentage of the student body goes to prep school, comes from wealthy families. Yep. Do you feel like a fish out of water? I felt like a fish out of water in a good way. I really did. Like I, and the, I, that way was that I felt that I had a somewhat broader kind of experience of of life than some of the people that I met. And by the way, I mean you know, most of the people who went to you know sort of Andover and, right. and these places, are, I, I really enjoyed them. You know, but I but I felt like I first of all didn't feel I was at a an educational disadvantage. Um, but I'm not sure why. But I but I never felt like oh my god I'm just you know I'm like a I'm like a Volkswagen Beetle in a race with Ferrari. I never felt that. And secondly, I felt that because of all the kind of odd things, not odd, but just slightly unusual things in my background, that I actually had a a kind of like I could see things going on in the world that not everybody could see. You know, we were young, so you get life experience. You learn. So I had a little, I guess, head start on. Sort of the life experience side compared to some of them. So I saw it, you know, as a somewhat of a positive. And, you know, the Harvard Business School, which is certainly different from undergrad, yeah. they have a lot of extracurricular activities that cost a lot of money. So when you were there, did you feel, which was not the business school, did you feel you could participate? You had enough wealth to be able to do that? I think it those in those days – the emphasis it was certainly different from the business school as you as you say but in those days i mean you know i had enough money to go to pinocchios and have a slice and you know it was never uh, you know if we wanted to go to boston and i i think it was a little different in those days i think so that was not an issue of, it wasn't an issue and no. what did you study and, and by the way the, the other thing is you know you you get a job you work eight or ten hours a week, and then you've got you know some money in your pocket. I mean, like uh, in the cafeteria, sure. One of those cool yeah. jobs. Did you yeah. have to do that for your uh, for your? Wasn't required. For, for to. Aid? No, wasn't wasn't required to. Okay. But I I moved furniture and you know did a few other things like that. It was it was fine to have pocket money. Yeah. So what did you study at Harvard? English. Okay. And as you can, I speak English. Uh, right. Very so it well kind of works. Yeah. And you graduate in what year? Ninety one. And. Then you think what? Uh, I'm trying to remember what my mindset was at the time. I, I remember thinking, this is the fish out of water moment. When you're a senior in college then and now, but, you know, in, in a certain kind of school, they at the beginning of the year, I'm sure you remember this, they, they say, hey, here's this recruiting process. Don't worry, you're going to have a job when you, you know, at the end of the year. I went to year. college in the dark ages. <laughs> okay. Nobody I know, there were recruiters <laughs> at some point, but no. All right, so there's this process, and it's very organized, and it continues to this day, where at the beginning of senior year, maybe even junior year, they say, okay, here's what it's going to be. On this date, these people come in, and they meet you, and then you spend points to get interviews with McKinsey or with, you know, Boston Consulting Group or whatever. 
um, and they have big, you know, f- fairs where you come in and you see like, here are all the things, all the career things. And so I went to these career things and it was basically, and I'm not kidding here, here management consulting, you know, like McKinsey and that. Right. Uh, accounting, like big, big, what, six or whatever it was right. at the time. Right. Some little smidgen of real estate and the Peace Corps. And I was just like, man, it's bad when the one I'm most interested in is Peace Corps, right? Like, I, I don't want to do any of this stuff. So I really, I think I had that moment that a lot of young people have, which is what are there? In, you know, what jobs are there? You know, I had no idea. That's where, whereas other people were confidently like, buying really nice suits and, you know, interviewing with McKinsey and going through those problems where they ask you how many gas stations there are in the United States and all that stuff. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to talk about that with these guys. So know? what did you do? So I, um, I went to Japan. And Japan doing what? I taught English in Japan. Was that part of the Peace Corps? No, I didn't do the Peace Corps. That so was how, just, how did you get a gig teaching English so in Japan? So the woman, um, wonderful woman who owns a little English language school in Yamaguchi Prefecture in Japan, came to Harvard every year as part of this process. She hired one of my best friends, and he went over there um, just right after we graduated. It's like a couple of months later he was there. And so I sort of, uh, I don't know, skulked around for a few months trying to figure out what in the world I was going to do. Um, and he said, well, you should consider doing this because the other slot in – our little branch of the school just opened up. We'll have a great time. Let me tell you more about it. And I thought, and this is a, a very mature thought for a person of my age at the time, one of the few ones, I guess, where I thought, when will it ever be easier for me to just put all my stuff in a bag and fly to the other side of the world and just live for a while? And the answer was probably never. So maybe I had to do this. <laughs> so I, I, so I did. So I, and how long were you there? I was actually there for two and a half years. So I thought I was going to be there for the one year contract and, uh, ended up there for two and a half years. And where is this place in Japan? So Yamaguchi prefecture is on the, the main island, Honshu, the main island, but it's way down at the, at the Southern tip. So if you can imagine the geography of Japan, it's just kind of like there's the four major islands, the big island down in the South. And so how far are you from a city that we've heard of? Uh, well, we are about, Yamaguchi is about a one-hour train ride from Hiroshima, which you've certainly heard of. And so, did you learn Japanese? Yeah, I learned Japanese. How long did it take you to learn Japanese? I mean, it's a question of degree, of course, but I mean, I was pretty conversant in about a year. Uh, And by the time I left, I was, if not fluent, near fluent. And And can you still speak it? I can still speak it, but I'm super rusty. Like, you know, there are times when just words, if I try to right. speak. It just and did you take tumble. classes or did you just pick it up as it went on? Uh, I was kind of a self-taught Japanese speaker, but the great thing about learning a language when you live in a country is you can just learn it in a sort of academic way, you know, just sit down with a book and go, okay, it's this, and then just immediately put it into practice. And you, <laughs> the feedback is, what? <laughs> like, you say something and people go, that doesn't mean anything. And so you, you learn, you know, rapidly as opposed to in a classroom setting where for all you know, you know, right. what you're saying. Well, what about the alphabet? The alphabet's different. Yeah, it's really complicated. And can you write uh, and read? Yeah, I mean, I, at at my peak, I was the, literate at the sort of seventh or eighth grade level. 
Um, so I'm sure I'm well into the elementary school years at, at this point. Okay, so you pay your two and a half years of dues there. Yeah, it was great. And then how do you decide ultimately, I got to move on? I just think it was one of these things where, you know, my ambition in life was not to be an English teacher, even though it was fun. You know, it was a great, for me, that was, and it was a great opportunity um, for, for all those reasons. But, I, you know, there's this thing that happens, and I think this is true in Japan. It's true in other parts of, um, you know, the world. And you have expats who they do something like they go somewhere for a year, like my plan was. And the next thing they know, they're 40. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? It's just it's so much, you know, it can be so much fun. And there's a kind of uh, like you're in a magical bubble from from real life in those settings in many cases. Well, you know, this is not a perfect analogy, but when I was living in Utah after I graduated from college and I was there the second year, I said, if I don't leave now, I'm going to be here the rest of my life. No, I think it's exactly the same. You know, it's exactly the same. Um, And it's funny because when you when you live in a place like Japan outside of Tokyo or in Osaka, the, the really big cities, you also get the added bonus of having this kind of weird celebrity. So, you know, just being an American in the town that I grew up in meant that I was constantly being sort of greeted and and taken out for drinks and dinner and stuff like that. So you get that thrown in. And so you can imagine how you could get a little hooked on that. You know what I mean? Without actually doing anything of any real value. So, okay. So the thought process and the ultimate decision to leave. Yeah. It was just it's time for me to actually make a contribution to the world as opposed to – I mean not that I wasn't making a contribution but, you know. Anyway, it was it was certainly time to do something else. Um, I, I definitely had ambitions to do other stuff. And um, so what did you do? Well, I went – so I, I thought to myself I can go – I'm going to go home but I can go anywhere, home being just the United States, Right. And my very sort of unscientific thought process was, well, I should go to California. And if I think about it now, there were probably two reasons for that that worked together. One is it's where interesting stuff was happening. And two, it's warm. Because for me, warm is, was in South Carolina. Important. And you were right. in Boston, some of the worst weather anywhere. Yeah, that's right. The, in fact, I remember the moment in my, uh, in my time in, in Boston – um, that I decided, you know, I've had enough of this. I was, I, I used to do this job. I loved it. Actually, it was great. Uh, I had this, um, this old international harvester truck, um, and I would meet. There was a weekly student paper that got delivered. That they printed it in the outs, in the like the suburbs of Boston. Drove it in at like five in the morning, and I drove my truck. Met this guy. We loaded all the papers onto the truck, and then I drove them around campus and dropped them off in all the little places where you pick up the free student paper. That was my job. It's awesome. Um, but it meant that I had to get up really early in the morning. And so it's February of my senior year or something like that. And I'm up at 5 o'clock. And you remember how these old trucks were where you got to let them warm up for a while? Of course. And you, you grew up in the north too, so you, you remember this. You know, and I'm scraping the ice off the front of this, this truck. And I'm sitting there freezing. You know, it's whatever below zero. And I, and I remember it was like – it was like something. It was like a, a a a tone, you know, rang or a breeze washed over me, and I was like, "Oh, I don't have to do this. <laughs> I've had enough." Got to go where the weather. weather suits your clothes. <laughs> That's right. You're listening to my conversation with Gold Star CEO and founder Jim McCarthy, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. 
Hope you're enjoying this episode of the Bob Left Sets podcast. If you want to see videos, photos, and sound bites from Jim and the rest of my guests as they join me in the studio, visit at TuneIn on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Now, more of my conversation with Jim McCarthy on the Bob Left Sets podcast. So you decide to go to California. So I decided to go to California, went to the Bay Area. Without a job. You're just going. Without a job. A good buddy of mine from college was actually at the uh, Livermore lab as a laser physicist. Um, And so he let me sort of sofa surf for a while. Um, And my the the sole direction of my ambition at that time was i think maybe i should be in business i mean really i thought you know like cuz and what's interesting about that is that you could in living in japan at that time you could actually see what prosperous successful businesses had done for this country you know you could actually still see evidence of the old japan in a way right like one of my friends in japan said at the in the 90s that Japan was like the house of somebody who won the lottery. So you could still see that, like, it was the same house, right? You could still see their life before they won the lottery, but now, you know, and they, they worked hard for the lottery, but, you know, whatever. I, I don't know if that metaphor doesn't really hold up, but you get my point. Right? You could actually see the, uh, the sort of um, challenges and poverty that Japan had come out of relatively quickly. And so my thought was, well, this is a sort of prosperity engine that society's need to put to use as best they can. So I was excited about technology and, you know, um, business as a tool for everybody being more prosperous. So what so job did you actually get or what, what business did you start? So I didn't start a business right away, um, but I, I went to work for Noah's Bagels. How do you Bay get Area. a job at Noah's Bagels? They're I, not recruiting and you're off campus already. I mean, I'm two years out of school at this point, so no one cares what I do, right? So I, so I, I, went, I went to Noah's Bagels as a store manager. So I, no, I'm, but a little bit slower. Yeah. You're yeah, reading yeah, the sorry. newspaper and you say, oh, Noah ba- Noah's Bagels looking for people? Well, so at that time, Noah's was the hottest restaurant concept in the Bay Area and really all over California. So you didn't have to look far to encounter the idea of people being excited about it. And the closer I looked, Noah Alper was a, wasn't as a real guy who just had some very innovative ideas about what business should be and ran the business to those ideals, and it was really working. It was just super-duper working. So how did you literally get the job? So I literally got the job by, by I don't know if I actually apply, sent in an application or if I called. I know I called. I don't know whether I right. applied and then called or you know which, right. which order I did that in, but it was really a question of just saying, hey, I'm interested in this. And I had to kind of wade through the skepticism of like, really? You, why, why would you be interested in this? And I said, no, no, I'm interested in it because of what you all are doing as a business. I want to be around a high-growth business. I want to see what, you know, if I can't run, you know, a bakery or bagel store, what makes me think I can run anything, right? So they so, thought you were overqualified? Is they just it? thought I wouldn't stay right. if they gave me a job. Um, and so... I convinced them to do it, and, you know, it was an adjustment of just, like, I, I didn't know the business at all. Okay, but they immediately make you manager of a store? Yeah. Well, there's, it's a, there's a program for that, right? Like there's, there's, I don't know. This is like, so there's a training program? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, at they, the time you worked there, how many Noah's Bagels were there? There were 13 when I started. Okay, so relatively small. How many are there today? Well, at, at the peak, I think there were 150. I'm not sure how many there are today. And is that a public company at this point? Uh, it was bought in uh, a little later on by... Uh, Einstein's bagels. Right. So that 
is uh, went public, you know, not too long after right. that. Um, and then now I'm not sure if they're public or if someone's taken it. And is Noah again. himself, how long is he still involved? Noah uh, sold the business to Einstein's, Einstein. yeah. And then he was out. And then he was mm, sort of a spiritual figure, but, but he wasn't directly Like Ben involved. and Jerry over at the ice cream place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, He's, okay. He is a lot like Ben and Jerry. Okay. He's ben and Jerry. So you got to work there, 13 yeah. Noah's Bagels. How yeah. long is the training program? I think I was a trainee for two months. And then you get your own store, which is where? It was in Berkeley. Okay. And you go to work and go, I'm digging this, or what the fuck am I doing? It was a little of both. Because, you know, th- this is also a time when on Sunday morning uh, on Solano Avenue in Berkeley, um, the lobby would fill by 7 a.m. And people would wait for, to, to order their bagels for two – I'm not kidding, two hours sometimes. And it wasn't because we were slow. We were just – mobbed <laughs> with people. And this is true at several of the big Noahs around the Bay Area. Um, and there were times when I just thought, like, what have I gotten myself into here? Um, but on the other hand, you know, a lot of that sort of actual contact with customers and the importance of how you guide and direct people that work for you, all of that stuff, I just, it was very much there to be learned. How many people were working for you at that time? Uh I think we had 40 or 50 employees at the store, not all at the same right, time. Right, of course. Just different so a shows. lot of people. And so how many, many hours people. a week did you have to work? I don't think I had a set number of hours, but I was there five or six days a week for, you know, 10, 12 10 hours, hours right. however long it was. Yeah, Right. Yeah. So, but when they gave you the gig, they did the management tra- trainee, and you're now going to run your own NOAAs. Yeah. Is there a promise or if you do well, there's something in the future? No, not specifically. But I knew that there would be. Because my, my sense was that the, the growth of this business, and they were very, you know, upfront about the growth plans for the business, that the growth of the business was obviously going to necessitate different kinds of things being needed soon. Right? And actually, I left the store about six months later and came to L.A. to open the L.A. market with, uh, with, as part of the management team they sent down here to do that. And that was how many people? It was three people initially, me and, and uh, the guy who ran the, the region. And then the um, – I guess it was just the district – he was operations manager. I was brought as the training and HR and et cetera manager. So it was really it was the three of us coming down here to open what was going to be way larger than the home market, the Bay Area, so because, just because of the size you know, of the – And so you, you did that. How long were you with Noah's Bagels all told? Almost three years. Three yeah. years. Okay. So after you're the training person, is there another gig? Yeah. I just kept sort of picking up more responsibility within the L.A. market. And are you making any money? Not of any appreciable amount. I mean, the, the good thing was we went public, and so we made a little money from that. And, you know, it wasn't – it certainly wasn't a money-based thing. Uh, I, I mean, for me, I felt like I was making great money at the time. You know what I mean? Like suddenly I wasn't totally broke, you know. Okay. So you do that for three years. Yeah. How, how do you decide to move on? Um, this is actually really one of these interesting stories that, uh, I don't know how I'm so personally involved in this, but there, there was a period of time, just two or three months where Noah's, there was this crazy collapse in the culture at Noah's. And you may or may not remember this, but I know you were here at at the time, Bob. Um, Noah's was a kosher keeping shop. Mm -hmm. So we had 60, 70, 80, whatever, restaurants up and down the West Coast 
that were under rabbinical supervision. And I say this like, you know, uh, an Irish, right. Irish, Italian, American, like, you know, what do I know about it? But I knew a lot about it at the time. Right. We I when I ran the store in Berkeley, I had a chat with the rabbi every single week, you know, and he'd walk through the store. And um, but um, uh, the decision was made. The ownership changed a couple of times and the decision was made to walk back from the kosher certification. And it was like, you know, like Pavlov's Bell or something to where a lot of the people who really believed in Noah's as this somewhat better thing than just we're just slinging bagels, it's left over the course of about this. So the upper middle, that's, that's where everything stands or falls in a company typically is this sort of upper middle. We all left over about three months because – you know, you you have stories for years, people coming in and saying, we used to have to carry suitcases full of food when we traveled. But because Noah's was there, we knew that we didn't have to, you know. Um, but now we do. And so, you know, it's the kind of thing where somebody looks at a spreadsheet and says, only 7% of our customers keep kosher. So if we can increase sales from the other 93% by more than 7% or whatever the math is, hey, you know, Bob's your uncle. And no, no pun intended. Of course. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, of course, it doesn't work that way at all, right? Because there are a lot of people who don't keep kosher but who, who liked that we did, you know, that that mattered, that that signified something. Um, and the minute we didn't stand for that, well, what did we stand for? And the same thing with the, with the staff, right? The staff would, would go like – You've been saying all this time that this matters. You know, you've been saying all this time that there's something we're about here. And now you're saying, well, never mind, we're going to do turkey and cheese sandwiches. And it really was a kind of cultural collapse that happened over a very short period of time. Okay, so it collapsed on the inside, on the business side. Did it also collapse in terms of business, in terms of the customer side? Yeah, it, it did. I mean, there were certain stores where their sales dropped. I mean, it didn't collapse entirely, but there were certain stores where business dropped by 50% or more. And the really the forward momentum of the company basically came to an end. And so what? how did you decide to leave? Um, I, th- I think it was... You know, that, that was one of my reasons for staying, not kosher per se, obviously, because right. I definitely don't keep kosher. Um, but, um, but because, you know, the, the sort of magic of that had clearly sort of left the building. Um, and all of this is back justification, I guess. But the other thing is that um, I was in business school at the time. And where was this? At the Anderson School at UCLA. Now, is that an executive program or a full-time program? I was in what's called the fully employed MBA, so FEMBA. So it was three years to do two years. Okay, so it was just like the regular school, whatever. How did you decide to go to business school? Well, so as I was in business and I thought to myself, there's two ways to learn more about this. There's go do these jobs for a few years or you can kind of – I wasn't so foolish as to think – that I could really know accounting or really – but I know that in a business school setting, I could at least understand the vocabulary of those things, right? So and could, did Noah's pay for that? No, they didn't pay for it, but they, they enabled it. They, they allowed me to sort of work around the, the schedule and that kind of thing, which was nice. And at the time, were you married? Yes. Well, that's difficult. Okay, so you, yeah. g- you finish up with uh, school at Anderson about the same time as this change from kosher? It's about halfway through. Okay. About halfway through. But in the course of being at Anderson, 
I um, got super interested in this thing called the internet, which was emerging at the time. So this is 97. And I think my, my thought process was, was as deep as, you know, this is probably going to be something <laughs> that I should look into, you know. So I, so I, I left Noah's um, and thought, you know, this is a nice moment of reset for me. I can kind of pick a direction. You know, I've got some credible experience, but also, you know, I'm in school. So let's try something else. So I actually went to work at GeoCities, which was just down the street from where we're sitting right now. GeoCities was a so-called portal where you could build your own website. It was it was one of the very first places where you could build your own website. And it was free, which was a you know, incredibly right. uh, bold idea at the time. You know, a free website. Imagine that. And we had um, millions and millions of people who did that. So I drove from Pasadena down, down here every day for, for a while, which was pretty miserable. But it was a great experience in, in the Internet. And how long did you work for GeoCities? I worked for GeoCities until it was sold to Yahoo in 1999. And then what? And then I uh, joined a group of people, not as a founder but as a day one employee, who started an e-commerce startup in, right in the middle of the dot-com. And that was? It was called Kiko. And what did that do? Kiko, the concept of Kiko was that you, we, we were going to set up a system whereby um, people could create educational content and you could map that to an individual student. They would do lessons and earn prizes from their parents. So their parents would sign them up. They'd learn stuff. They'd earn credits or whatever, and, uh, and they'd get rewarded for it. Now, needless to say, that didn't work out. It didn't work out. So how long were you there? Uh, I was there until 2002, just before. Gold okay, Star. so the next step yeah. was Gold Star. Yes. So right. talk us about talk to us about the start of Gold Star. The start of Gold Star was really born in the long drive between Pasadena and Long Beach. Uh, my other two co-founders, Robert and Rich, um, are they and, still involved in the company? Yeah, every day, every okay. day. Uh, we drove. We all worked at Kiko together and drove the long drive down to Long Beach. And sort of started talking about concepts and really struck upon this one and eventually – What was the original concept? The original concept was not that far off the core concept that it, that it is today, which is there's, there's shows that need people and there's people that need shows. And if you think about it, going back to, to 2002 or 2001, um, if you were a promoter and it was a week before a show – you didn't have that many options. You know, your right. marketing bullets had been fired, right? Um, but we knew that we could do something about that. If we got in at the time specifically, it was very much about email. We could customize the email, at least in a crude way. We could at least say, well, you like music, here's music, you know, and, and move very fast. So was there a light bulb moment in the car or it just evolved? It evolved. I mean, it, it really did. Okay, evolve. so how long did you talk about it to decide to, well, we're going to do it? You know, we had those conversations that I think people have where, you know, one day we're going to do it our way. You know, those, whenever you're frustrated with what other people are doing that you're going along with, right? So it evolved from those kinds of, you know, general gripe sessions and probably, you know, two-thirds BS to a, as we got to the point where all of us were clear that we were going to leave Kiko because it just, you know, wasn't going the direction that um, we thought it should go or that we hoped it would go, whatever. We started thinking, okay, what could we really do? What could we really do? Um, and so in fall of 2001, we started business planning Gold Star. 
Okay, so to start Gold Star, what did you do for money? We didn't spend any. So you didn't take any investment? No, no. And at this late date, are you interested in selling Gold Star? Uh, could, could be, could be. The I mean, people, I think anybody, anybody who starts a business that has ongoing value that doesn't rely on them coming into work every day has to think that way, right? It just, it's just something that, you know, if you create residual value in a business, you have to be open to the possibility that one day you're not the best owner for it. Okay, so you start the business in 2002 yep. in Los Angeles, yep. and it's totally bootstrapped on everybody's, you know, money in the bank. Yep. Okay, how long after you start it does it launch? Uh, well, let's see. So we, we firmly decided to, to do Gold Star on Halloween of 2001. And we launched on Valentine's Day of 2002. Wow. Well, who did all the programming we and did. all that? And so you know how we, to do that? Well, so we all, there were various parts of that. So before anyone thinks I know how to do any of that, I right. don't. However, what I do, I do know, each of us was able to do the parts of it that made a difference. So Robert, who's the CTO today, built everything. We, we leaned on our, I, I like to say we Tom Sawyered our internet friends into helping us with things like design, right? We, we uh, hey, you want to help us do this thing? And, and they did. And, you know, we cut them in on the, on the company later on. So but, it launches in uh, Valentine's yeah, Day. Yeah. How do you get your reach? How do you market? Yeah, that, that's, I like to say we started with nobody to sell to and nothing to sell. So that's, it's that two-sided marketplace problem, <laughs> right? Hey, Everybody come on down to Gold Star because we got nothing to sell. And um, you, in this interim, certainly between Halloween and Valentine's Day, yeah. did you say to yourself, hmm, we're going to need events. We're going to need people to go yeah. out yeah, talk yeah. to salespeople? We definitely did. And, and, and we did those things. But, you know, it's like, it's like the flywheel effect in reverse, right? It's, right. it's, it's the inertia of not having anything. And so the one thing we had was we had credibility, right? We, we could demonstrate that we knew what we were talking about. Not with live events. We didn't know anything about that. But with the technology and the way that you market online and stuff like that, we could say, like, we've done these things, you know, and we just didn't come across as idiots, right? So we would go to venues and, and promoters and say, trust us because there's nothing for you to lose if it doesn't work, you know? And, you know, that, that wasn't necessarily an easy sell, but it was just one of these things where you have to build it a little bit at a time. Um, and really, it was a question of you got to have some inventory. You don't have anything. So the inventory had to run ahead of the audience a little bit. But then we had to find ways to get the audience there as quickly as we could. So what happened? Well, one of the things that we did in the early days was we went to big companies, which we still had in L.A. at the time. Um, companies like Countrywide Home Loans, Earthlink. <laughs> right? Both not, not there anymore. Right. And we said, hey, we can create you a, a sort of page of event offers. We do a little branding to the to company logo and stuff like that if you will tell your employees about it. And this, was, this sounds really lame right now, but at the time it was a very novel idea. And so Countrywide um, was very excited about it, and they were like, great. So they, they would send an email to 15,000 employees saying, hey, here's this thing. And so Earthleak, same thing. And so we, we did this for long enough that it actually accumulated enough people for the, you know, the sort of yeast to activate. You know, and we started getting this little uh, viral spread, right, of, of people doing it. And then we got sales. So then it was easier for us to go get inventory. And the thing just built a little at a time. Okay. Well, how long did it take to, you know, start moving? About seven months. 
before. The, I remember the the time we we did. It was a an event in Orange County called Teatro Zingaro, which was a horse ballet, a French horse ballet. And we just sent an email about it, you know, to whatever our, our group of people was. And it just kept selling and selling and selling. So unlike everything we had done up to then, where it was kind of like pumping air into a leaky tire, you know, oh, they sold, oh you know, it, we sold a few, oh, nobody's there. All of a sudden, it just had momentum, right? People had accumulated in enough numbers that they actually, you know, kept buying it. Um, and so that was the day that I thought, oh, we've, we've actually reached the point where there's a little bit of, you know, viral coefficient on what's going on. So did you ever think of giving up? <sighs> Probably. I don't know. Um, sure, of course. And so what have you learned along the way? Uh, one of the things that I've learned is that everything is difficult. You know, from, from the point of view of an entrepreneur, everything is difficult. Um, I think that it's sometimes tempting to, you know, to think, well, why won't this work? You know, people get ideas. I, I hear it. You know, I hear, I hear concepts. I run a meetup for entrepreneurs in Pasadena, and so I hear entrepreneurs every month kind of talk through their, their concepts. And sometimes people get this idea that, well, if it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. I mean, that's a given. I'm just trying to figure out whether I want to go for a billion or, or you know. <laughs> you know and, and, the, and the truth of it is, like, it's just nature doesn't care about your success, right? So it's just fundamentally hard for something that doesn't exist to exist and thrive. It's just not likely, right? And so I think, you know, one of the things that I've gained a tremendous amount of respect for is the difficulty of every little thing. Do you know what I mean? Whether it's you start a podcast and you want to build an audience, it's difficult, right? Like everything is difficult. And, and so that is one of the biggest lessons that, that we had. And you can make some things easier with money, but you can have all the money in the world, and it doesn't guarantee anything necessarily, right, Dep- depending on what you're trying to do. Okay, so if you had this success seven months later with the horse show, yeah. horse ballet, at what point were you confident, this is rolling, this is my future? Probably a year or two into it. I mean, the first thing we had to overcome was we needed to actually be able to pay ourselves. We had to be able to make a living. And were you living off savings or were your wives working or significant uh, others? combination of things, right? Like there was a little bit of, um, you know, left, you know, we, we did projects. You know, we did web development projects and stuff like that. We, it was a combination of all kinds of things. I mean, you did well, web development projects for other, for other people yeah. just to keep yeah, the yeah, lights yeah. on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, and it was a very challenging time. And this is the thing that I say to entrepreneurs all the time is that, you know, if you're not prepared for a, at least a couple of years of a real scrap, you know, a real daily scrap, you're probably not ready. You know, unless you're going into a business where it's essentially the same thing you were doing for somebody else and it's a professional services kind of thing, where you're kind of just transferring your customer. That's different, right? But that's also a business that totally relies on your labor. If you're trying to build a business that you know, you know, I can sit and chat with Bob Lefsetz for a couple of hours and, you know, it doesn't affect my business, right? If you're trying to do that, it's, it's at least a couple of years. If you're lucky, it's a couple of years of just sweating it out, you know? We'll pause here for a brief moment and get right back to Jim McCarthy. Many of you already know that I'm a writer. I write about music, media, my life, and the world at large. You can check out my writing at leftsets.com. 
I'd like to give you a little taste of the podcast from behind the scenes as well. Go to leftsets.com and sign up for the newsletter to read about what you hear and a whole lot more. Now, more with Gold Star CEO and founder Jim McCarthy, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. One thing I deal with all the time uh, in the music sphere is people email me and they say, I'm determined to make it. I'm not going to give up. Yeah. And perseverance is very important. Yep. yep. But sometimes people should give up. Yes, I agree with that. So what yeah. do you tell the people at the meetup? Uh, this is actually one of the trickiest things to answer because it, it's absolutely right. And, and everybody has a different point. You know, it's hard to tell somebody to put the well-being of their family um, at grave risk. How can you tell somebody that, right? Um, because it, it, at best, the odds are against you, right? So one of the things that I think people could do more as entrepreneurs is find ways to, to knock down some of the risk. You know, just little ways to learn how risky their idea is or how good their idea is as, quick, you know, as quickly and cheaply as they can so that it's not betting the farm on something that hasn't been proven at all. But, it, but it's just inherently, you know, I, I don't know. The, the, you, the Churchill quote about ne- never give up, you're from, you know this quote. Right. He says, exce- he says, you know, never give up in the face of, I can't remember the exact quote. Great adversity. The strength of the, like of the enemy or whatever. Right. But he says, except to, except to the considerations of good sense or something like that. So people always take that part of the quote out, but I think it's the key part, right? Well, it's, like, it's just like information wants to be free. The other half of was, or <laughs> wants expensive. to be very expensive. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. People just don't remember that. Yeah. But, okay, um, now some people become infatuated with building businesses. Yes. That Since you've been with Gold Star now for an excess of 15 years, yeah. that doesn't seem to be your viewpoint. Well, I think if, if, if you know you rebooted my brain and I didn't know who I was or I, I didn't know what Gold Star was and I was just exactly the same person, I probably would think, I should start a business. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think I would probably think automatically, you know what I had to do? I had to start a business. Okay, so you were destined to start a business. That was my in- intention from a career point of view. I felt like there was either either grow a business or start a business. So, you know, I spent the first few years of my career in high growth businesses that I didn't start. Um, and, I, and I really learned a lot from that as opposed to being in a kind of static state business. Um, and so I think all of that is kind of what I'm sort of oriented to doing. <coughs> okay. In a world where everybody seems to build to sell, you have an opposite philosophy. How did you decide to do that? Well, it's not really an opposite. I mean, I, I think it's worth saying, like, we're not resistant to the idea. I understand someone. everything's for sale. This table's yeah. for sale for right sure. offer. But there are many people who are saying, I'm going to do this for a couple of years. I'm going to lay this late date. I'm going to lay it off on Google, yeah. Facebook, et cetera. But you've been doing this a long time. Is it yeah. because the, that was never your thought or the offers of the, the right price never came I mean, in? The offers, what? we have conversations on a regular basis with di- with different folks, and um, and they're always interesting, and I think that probably one day we'll sell the company to, to somebody, and when it makes the most sense. Um, so I, I don't. I think sometimes people think we're resistant to the idea of. We're not really. It just needs to make sense, you know. Um, I, I just think when you build a business, it, very few people are slick enough to say, you know, I'm just going to build this thing so that I can just dump it and. That, I'm just not that smart, I guess, right? Like, I, I don't know how to to build to flip like that, um, and, I, and I don't know how many people are. I mean, surely there are some. Um, 
but uh, you got to build a good business. Okay, so at this point in time, how many employees are there at Gold Star? It's about 100. Okay, so what does it take to move into a new market? It doesn't take much anymore because uh, the technology is such that it's there's a lot of ways in which the um, the business kind of comes to us. So you could – let's say you had a show in a, in a market that we're not in. You could go to the Gold Star website right now, sign up, and that show would be active in a matter of hours and soon it will be um, instantly. Um, and so – But it only works if I'm offering you sales inventory. Y- well, you can you can have full price inventory, but but inventory at all. Yeah. You're not a listing service. Not a listing service uh, in terms of events. Not a listing service, and that's not to say we wouldn't potentially do that at some right. point. But at this point, it's a it's a place where people buy stuff. Right. They learn about it, and sometimes they don't buy it. But the point for us right now is that they do buy it. Um, and so let's just stop here for a yeah. second, because people can ask. Let's say a ticket is a hundred dollars. Uh-huh. That you're selling it for $100. Forget sure. what the sticker yeah, price yeah. may or may not yeah. be. How much of the money goes to Gold Star? Um, most cases, $90. I'm sorry. Other way around. $90 goes to the show. 90-10. Yeah, 90-10. Mm-hmm. So everything is a unique decision. It's it's virtually always 10% on that. Okay. Yeah, that's the sort of standard. Okay, thing. so back to how you open up a new market. So somebody says, I want to be on my yeah. be on your service. They can, they can create their event. Um, the way the system works now... A lot of stuff happens automatically. Stuff goes out to Facebook automatically. Stuff goes into email potentially automatically. So while we're kind of guiding it in the, in the broadest sense of aware of what promotions are happening where, some of it just kind of happens now. Um, okay, which, but which how, let's say somebody sits there and goes, okay, we're in 20-odd cities, and I don't know whether you're in the city, but we should do Boise. Right. How do you do that? There's, there's two ways that if we, if we deliberately said, hey, we want to be in a city that we're not in, we would basically devote some uh, people power to figuring out what's in Boise, who we need to talk to, and building a credible minimum inventory base there by reaching out, by leveraging relationships we've got, right, whether it's with you know, Live Nation or Cirque du Soleil, whoever, whoever already works with us in other places, and saying, hey, we're going to make a little bit of a push in Boise, um, it might be a little light at first, but you've seen our progress in other markets, so help us out. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll get there. We'll, we'll promote your shows. And so we build a kind of critical mass of inventory somewhat manually if and we wanted to make a specific push for a market like that. And what about growth potential? What do you mean? In terms of you want to go international? How many cities do you want to be in? Oh. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're not in Canada right now, which is really something we want to correct in the next year or so. Um, and then international, you know, internationally beyond Canada, we're we're not sure if we do that. It'll probably be with a partner. If we if we did a European expansion, we'd probably do it with a partner. And if you're in twenty odd cities in America right now in the United States, how much does that saturate the market, or how many more cities can you be in? I mean, we're actually in more than twenty. We're we're in uh, upwards of sixty or seventy at this point. So okay, uh, sixty or seventy cover yeah. it. It covers. It mostly. I mean, the, the, the thing is, it's like being in a city, and I'm doing air quotes again, is not a binary, right? Like there's how many people do we reach and what's our inventory coverage? So there's a lot more depth to be had, you know, everywhere, I would say, but certainly outside sort of 12, 15 really strong markets, there's a lot more depth, both in terms of people who should be our customers and inventory that we're selling. So the, the, um, the infill opportunity is still big for us. 
And so what are the challenges you now face at Gold Star? The challenges we face are are similar to some of the other challenges that live entertainment – we have special ones and we have general ones, right? The general problems are that, you know, live entertainment as a whole is way harder than anyone thinks, you know, except people who are in the business, which is you have – you know, I often say we sell mostly music and theater. So you could think of it as, you know, music and plays, right? Like concerts and plays. That's mostly what we sell. 60-plus percent fall into those two categories. If we were selling, instead of music and plays, you know, recorded music and books, right, analogs to those two things, then your problem is simpler in a way because you've got to find a product to match a person. You have that same problem in live entertainment, but then you also have to match the product, the person, the place, and the time. So you have this four-dimensional set of challenges. And the way that the industry, as you well know, the way that the industry typically responds to that is either like really pushing hard or, and this is not a, this is a sensible idea, but it has its limitations, or um, focusing on the very, very biggest things because they have marketing budgets, they have pre-existing awareness, maybe that kind of thing. And the reality is that's a very limiting outlook on what what the market is, and it, and it's a very limiting outlook on what people do and how they think, right? Um, and so that problem is one that's very general. And over the last few years, you know, there's just been more energy put into amping up the conversation about should you buy your expensive concert tickets or playoff basketball tickets from this guy, this guy, this guy, or this guy? You know, and what's the difference, right? So the commoditization of what's being sold there is, is stronger than ever because, again, everyone's focusing on those very, very top tier of events when consumers are saying, well, I think I can find, if I really want to go see, you know, the Golden State Warriors, you know, playoff game, I know where I can go find, I know the parameters of that search, you know. Um, so for us, our, our challenge is to speak at a different frequency in some way so that people go, oh, I, I see, there's a lot of stuff I could go see that's actually quite great that's not being crawled over by every broker in the world that's happening closer to me, that's probably closer to my actual taste. There's a whole world of this stuff. So we have to um, – we sort of have to overcome the din, you know, of all of that uh, and make that case in a way that's stronger than, um, than it currently has been for us. So it used to be – when we started, it was extremely novel. What we did was extremely novel. And so, you know, saying that in a way that still, you know, sounds novel or sounds novel anew is, is the thing that we're working on now. This is why we, you know, part of that's technology and part of it's not. And it's all word of mouth. You don't do any marketing or advertising. No, we do. We do. I mean, you know, we, we don't do, or at least we haven't done sort of big, bold brand campaigns because it's just one of these things where you got to be, you know, you, you can't do a little of that. <laughs> you got to have to do it or, or not do it. So, um, but we have, you know, we have uh, a pretty active um, set of Facebook campaigns, which are pretty targeted. We have an affiliate program that includes Groupon and Yelp and, and a bunch of other big, Facebook and others that, uh, that syndicate the content. Um, but yeah, I mean, so it, it, in a way it is quiet relative to someone who would do, a venue buyout at the Staples Center or something like that. We're not going to do that anytime soon. So how many tickets in a year does Gold Star sell? Millions. 
that, that, that's as, as specific as I get uh, about it. But we sell millions of tons. Okay. So I'm an event producer. Pitch me on Gold Star. Gold Star has many millions of people who turn to us to find out what they're going to do. Whether they buy from us or simply learn about your event from us, not being listed in the Gold Star listings is a, is a big missed opportunity for you. So we know, we ask people who've been to events that they bought from us, where did you find out about this event? 80 to 85% of people say, I learned about it on Gold Star. Now, that varies a little bit. If you're Taylor Swift, that's probably not true. But for pretty much everybody else, that means that four or more out of five people would not have gone to your event but for Gold Star. And we all know that awareness at any given point of, a, of an event is lower than you think it is when you're the one marketing it, right? Every marketer is sure that everyone knows every single thing that they're doing. But the reality is people are just living their lives. And so what you need is you need uh, an outlet, a channel for a kind of on-demand audience building. And Gold Star is a place where people are only there for live entertainment. Our only job is to make them aware of events and try to sell them uh, tickets to those events. Sometimes they buy from us. Great. Sometimes they become aware of an event from us and they buy from you two or three weeks from now after a Google search or they go to your website. That's all fine. But the key thing is this is a channel, a, a big pool of attention being directed onto live events specifically, and you can't miss out on it. Well, the other thing I think which we've danced around but haven't said specifically is that in today's Tower of Babel society, you can reach people yes. the event producer cannot. That's, that's the whole idea. That's exactly It's not right. like the old days when we all listened to a couple of radio stations, yep. read the same newspapers, et cetera. Now, flipping it over, I'm a customer. Convince me why I should be on Gold Star. Because we can help you go out more by finding you stuff that is really suited to your tastes. We'll save you money. We are the best organization for customer service in the entire ticketing business because we're on your side. We're more like ticket buyers than ticket sellers. And if you sign up for Gold Star, if you use Gold Star – you're going to have more fun in your life. You're going to be enriched with the relationships of the people that you go to the shows with. You're going to learn about your city. You're going to just have a whole lot more fun, and we're going to make it easy for you to do that. I just uh, amplify the point about you're on your side and we have good customer service. Yeah. So our, our way of looking at it, I'm not, I'm not uh, bashing anybody here, but our focus has always been on thinking of ourselves as ticket buyers rather than ticket sellers. Um, Typically, if someone writes into Gold Star with a problem, they get an answer in minutes, and they get an answer from an actual person <laughs> actually solving their problem. Um, you know, we do a lot of things to take as much of the headache out of the buying process as we can, things that people hate, like captures and 10 a.m. on sales and stuff like that that we just don't do. It's partly because it's not necessary for us to do it, but we don't want to go in that direction because what we want people to understand is that, you know, we are a service-oriented organization. You know, we're not – trying to prove to you that, you know, we're so cool that we won't help you. Like, we really, we really want to remove all the obstacles from your path that, for you to have a good time. That's, well, what, that's our well, what kind of problems do people have? Uh, well, I mean, people have the problems of, well, okay, I don't – tell me more about this event. So someone can write in and just say, like, what's with this event? And someone will say, well, it's this, you know, and they'll kind of give them a little more background on it. Or they'll say, can I 
you know, um, you know, where, where's the best place to park nearby? So we're just we're just trying to remove the barriers as much as we can. Part so if that, I email about that, I'm going to get an answer that quick. You're going to get an answer very quickly. Yeah, I mean, it could be a matter of a couple of hours rather than than uh, twenty or thirty minutes. But our our point is, you know, when when people and we do this, you know, I think people have an expectation that if they write in or however they contact a company for help. They may get an answer in a day or two. They may never get an answer. Right. Um, and I'm not sp- specifically talking about ticketing organizations because I think there's a lot of good ticketing organizations. But, you know, our expectation is that people get an answer and they don't just get an automated answer. They get an answer from an actual person who knows, you know, how it works on Gold Star. And their goal is to get you through your problem. Their goal is not to tell you what the rule is. Their goal is to get you through the problem. And so we see ourselves as being service-oriented, not so much in the sense of just customer service, but that our goal is to facilitate making it easy for you to succeed. And success means you find something to do and you go have a great time. Okay. In doing this for 15-odd years, a couple of events that you found out through Gold Star that really rang your bell, changed your life, or you like to talk about it. <laughs> Yeah, actually, there, there's one that there was one. This is, <laughs> I almost feel like maybe this was just a dream and it didn't really happen, but there, there was a, a, a show, and this was pretty early in our, in our history. Um, there was a show at the Los Angeles Theater downtown. Do you, have you been to the to Los Angeles Theater? No, I know it, but I have not been there. You got to go into that building sometime. I mean, it, it's it's this old you know movie palace. There's pictures of you know Einstein when he came to a premiere there in the 40s or whatever it was. Um, but it's also in it's just in a state, just in a, an awful state. But it, I think it was 2004, or 2005. There was a show there called Alma, and it was a I guess kind of a theatrical production, but it was almost like a concert. And it was the story of Alma Mahler, who was married to Gustav Mahler and, and like, two other famous guys. And so you, you get in there, and the show starts, and then it just goes everywhere. So over the entire course of the sort of three or four hours, the characters just go wherever they want. You can go wherever you want. Um, in the middle, physically, physically within the building. Yeah, yeah, just all over, like, in every nook and cranny, and there's a different thing happening everywhere. You know, in the middle of the thing, Gustav Mahler dies, and everyone comes together in the theater, the actual theater part of the theater, and has his, his funeral. And then everyone goes, and this all really happens, everyone goes and sits down for the dinner after the, after the funeral. So you sit down and you eat, you know, like, Austrian food, and it was just nuts. Like, at one point, at one point, they're like, oh, come with me. We're going on a we're going on a tour, and so I'm like, eh. so we go and we go sit in a school bus that's parked outside. They say we're going to go on a tour of the imagination. I'm like, of course it's a tour of the imagination, <laughs> you know. But it's like, okay, close your eyes, count down, three, two, one. The school bus engine starts up, and we drive away. <laughs> so we're driving around the streets of of downtown LA, you know, for like 20 minutes. Uh, and then we get back, and then like there's an air raid, and there's smoke everywhere. And we have to run back into this. So this whole thing goes on for you know three or four hours. It was crazy. It was a crazy thing. Well, as you can tell, Jim McCarthy, CEO of Gold Star, is excited about both his company <laughs> and the events that they sell. As I, everyone, I certainly encourage you. As we've established here, it is free, and it's yeah. in most communities, most metropoli in America. I check it out. As I say, at first, like many things with the internet, even Google. I remember Google. It's too simple. I know how to use Hotbot, whatever, and Alta Vista. If you go back to the search engine wars, 
People used to say, oh, Gold Star, that's a place where you go get discount tickets, et cetera. But it's really evolved into much more than that. And it's really in a society where we have no idea what's going on because there's too much going on. It certainly cuts through the fog. And Jim, thanks so much for being here on the podcast. Bob, it was fun to be here. Okay, great. Till next time, you're listening to the Bob Left Sets with Jim McCarthy, CEO of Gold Star on the Bob Left Sets podcast. That wraps up this week's episode of the Bob Left Sets podcast, produced by TuneIn and recorded live at their studios in Venice, California. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Gold Star CEO and founder Jim McCarthy. For those interested in the tech world as it relates to music, ticketing, and events, Jim was so informative. Did you enjoy the podcast? I'd love to hear your feedback. You can email me at bob at leftsets.com. Until next time, I'm Bob Leftsets. <laughs>